Heavenly Father, we have a room full of people that, Father, are eager to hear from your Spirit. And we know you are here as you promised to be. And, Father, you're here in your Word. You're here in your Spirit. And, Father, we know that through our prayers, you are hearing and attending to our needs. We ask, Father, tonight our study would be a fruitful one. You would be working in the hearts and minds of all that are hearing these words. And you'd be speaking to us in new ways. That we would uh, hear and and learn things, Father, that uh, alter our understanding, but more importantly, alter our lives. Give us uh, perhaps new direction, uh, conviction over uh, potential error and and mistakes as we make them, but more than anything, Father, just to draw us closer to you through your Son. Father, these are our requests. We put them before you tonight and seek your face as we go into your Word. In Jesus' name I pray, Amen. Uh, last week, just as a quick review, we've already covered from chapter 2, verse 2. Just to remind you, we looked at Israel's future. As Isaiah explained, this would be a glorious future when they would be redeemed from their sin. He talked that for a few verses. By verse 6, he had moved back to a topic of sinful Israel, reminding them of their present condition. That went on for a while. By verse 12... He is now talking about a reckoning, a day of reckoning, he called it. A reference to which period of time? The tribulation. The term we now use, which is a New Testament term, but it finds its origins in the Old Testament, certainly. A time we now know is is longer than a day, to be sure. It's seven years, to be exact. And it's a period of time that comes future even to our day now. So Isaiah was talking about a future day that's still future. And that was a day of... Reckoning, a day of recompense, the Old Testament calls it in another place, a day when Israel receives the full judgment for the sin of violating the Old Covenant, for not keeping the terms of the Old Covenant. Now we're going to finish the overview. Remember, these five chapters, one through five, present a a prologue, I guess is another way to put it, to the book of Isaiah. And if you think about it, the book's 66 chapters. It's not altogether unreasonable that he took five of them to give you an introduction. And here tonight we finish that introduction. From 4.2, we start picking up with a return to the theme of glory. Now, Isaiah will always talk in circular patterns, right? So, we're coming back to this, but that's expected. He will continue to return to these themes. He doesn't just deal with them once and put them aside for good. So, we come back to this, but with each return, we learn more. That's tonight. Finally, about chapter 5, or exactly chapter 5 onward in that whole chapter... He is going to describe a a new idea, one he has not talked about yet in the entire book, at least not to this point. And that is a period of judgment, a long period of judgment for Israel that is distinct from the day of reckoning, but includes the day of reckoning. On a timeline, what I'm saying is there's a period of time that represents this judgment that Israel has coming, Isaiah sits over here in front of it as he writes these words, looking forward to it. In this long period of time, which chapter 5 is going to talk about, or begin to talk about, there is also at the very end of it a short segment of it, which is the Day of Reckoning. So when we looked at that in chapters, from chapter 2.12 until chapter 4, verse 1, that's this Day of Reckoning, Tribulation. It's a part of a longer period of time that Isaiah is preparing now to to announce to Israel. 
which is itself all judgment, all a result of their failure to keep the covenant. It just gets really, really bad at the very end. So he'll talk at times about this. He'll talk at other times, like tonight, about this longer period of time. Now, as a student of Scripture, how do you know when you're looking at one versus the other? I mean, they're both judgment. They're both for the same offense. One even includes the other. So how do you keep them apart? Well, like anything else in Scripture, what, what do you use to clarify the meaning of any text? The context. So the context in which these things are being discussed, usually, if not always, will tell you clearly which one you're looking at. My job is to find those signposts for you and point them out so that you can see why we say we're looking at, let's say, this one or this one. Last time we were in here and I was talking about this one, because that's what Isaiah was talking about, we mentioned many of those signposts, if you remember. Events that are unique, that have never happened, that correspond or lined up with things we saw in the book of Revelation, for example. So that gave us a clear understanding. Remember, though, each of these topics, even this one here, are topics Isaiah returns to again and again and again. So some of the things we've just learned are tidbits that will get fleshed out much more later in the book. By the time Isaiah is over, then you'll have the full counsel of Isaiah on all of these topics, and you'll know clearly what's to be, to be known about all of them. So we need to complete the discussion tonight of the introduction. Before we get to these verses here, verses 4-2 and onward into 5, Let's complete just a little bit of what we lacked at the end of last week. At the very end of last week, at the end of the Day of Reckoning, we were looking at this tribulation period. We had already looked at what the men in Israel have coming to them, or to say it differently, what the nation as a whole have coming to them, right? But at the very end, not to leave out the women, there was a little section at the end of chapter 3 where Isaiah focuses on the women of Israel. And I kind of summed it up at the very end because of time. I told you last week, though, I would not skip those verses. So tonight, let's just read them. Let me cover anything I didn't cover last week, and then promptly into chapter 4. Isaiah 3.16 is where we left off. Chapter 3, verse 16 begins, Moreover, the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet, therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festive robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors. It's so contemporary, isn't it? Hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. Now, It will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of a well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Now, we said last week just briefly how the women of tribulation were complicit in the nation's sins, but in their own way. They they demonstrate here... Isaiah accounts for this here, and certainly you can find corresponding verses elsewhere in Scripture. But there's a certain pride, a certain haughtiness about them. They seek attention for their wealth. Remember I described last week what it meant that they would take mincing steps and you know, gain attention by jangling their, their, their whatever it is on their feet, their bangles, to draw attention to themselves and to their wealth. 
and walking in such a way so as to attract attention. Now, we can assume, and I think that's what Isaiah is trying to communicate here, is that their wealth came as a consequence of their seductiveness, because he mentions that they had seductive eyes. That's kind of a strange thing to mention unless it was connected in some way to their faults. And it's this seductiveness that allowed them husbands who gave them their wealth as a way to please them or to hold them in a relationship or in some other sense to, to, to placate them. But where did the wealth come from? Well, we already know back in verse 15 in this chapter that the husbands gained their wealth by taking it from orphans and widows, by denying what was rightfully belonging to the poor. They took advantage of the poor to their own gain. Now you see where it went, or at least part of it. So the women are complicit, complicit in this raping of Israel for wealth. Look in verses 18 through 23 as I read them. He lists 21 items that will be removed. Now, when you see a list like this in Scripture, what you ought to be asking as a Bible student is, you know, he listed a lot of stuff, but then again, I could probably mention a few things he didn't list, right? This isn't an inventory of all that women owned in that day, but yet it's also a very long list. So you look at it, you say 21 items. Why did he pick 21? Why not 20? Why not 19? Why not 30? There's a meaning, therefore, to, the, to God's picking of 21. It's interesting, 21 is 3 times 7. So you have 3s and you have 7s here. 3 is God's number or God in complete form. 7 is God's perfection. So it would seem that 21 here might signify God at work in completing judgment. God reverses their circumstances in the tribulation. They, they go from a state of beauty and pride and haughtiness to one of affliction. They have scabs and their hair falls out, etc., and he removes all that causes them to be beautiful. Now, how does this happen in tribulation? We covered this before looking at the men. I would bring out what Isaiah said, and then we would try to find in Scripture, if it were possible, somewhere in Scripture where we see this happening, and now specifically in the time of tribulation, because that's when this is supposed to happen. And in this case, we go to Revelation chapter 16. And this might be, this potentially could be a glimpse of what Isaiah is talking about. In chapter 16 of Revelation, verse 8, you hear the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it, to the sun in other words, to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. But they did not repent so as to give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Now, it is not a very specific passage, but you notice in there, among other things, afflictions going on to the persons of that time as opposed to the natural creation itself. You have people gnawing their tongues in pain over some kind of darkness that has come upon them through these pouring out of bold judgments. And in the last verse I read, they have pain and they have sores, whatever those may be. Could that be in some way related to what Isaiah is talking about here with the women having scabs, having hair plucked out? Well, clearly, it, it, you could say it's a stretch. At the very least, it's interesting connection. It certainly doesn't prove anything, but it's not to say you have to find an example here in, in the book of Revelation in order to substantiate what Isaiah is saying. What Isaiah says stands on its own. It simply says what it says. But I find it interesting that some of the same things you see going on in Revelation could be in some way related to what Isaiah said is coming. That the bold judgments in this case may be responsible for some of what these women are said to see happen to them. What do you think God's purpose is in these judgments? Now that's a question that 
you really tackle in the midst of a study of Revelation, right? And so it's, a, it's an issue we don't have necessarily the opportunity to cover here in depth. But you notice from what we've read in Revelation, both here and in the passages I read last week, that the effect of the judgments upon the people in their day is what? Worldwide revival? Hardly. The text in Revelation went out of its way in multiple cases, in multiple places, to say, despite what they were experiencing, they did not repent so as to give Him glory. And in other cases it says they blasphemed Him. Interestingly, they knew who to blame, but they weren't willing to come to Him in repentance. That's the result we see from God's pouring out of judgment. So, arguably, if these plagues were put upon the earth by God in a time of tribulation, and we know that the point of tribulation is principally directed at which group? The Jews, based on its purpose, based on its need to exist. It's a judgment against them for sin related to the Old Covenant, to the Mosaic Covenant. I'm throwing things out now that Isaiah himself will demonstrate later more clearly. But going with that for now... If God has produced these against the nation and the result of them in their day, in the moment they occur, is not repentance, but is instead defiance and a hardening of their heart, then arguably that was never their purpose. Their purpose, in other words, was not to create repentance because self-evidently it didn't. So if God had wanted repentance from Israel as a result of the plagues, they would have given him repentance as a result of the plagues. So clearly, the point of the plague in its day is not to create repentance. It doesn't have that effect. It's judgment. When you punish a child, for example, if the child acts remorseful in the middle of the punishment, does a good parent change the punishment midstream simply because the child shows remorsefulness? For example, you tell your child, if you do this, you're going to get in trouble and the punishment's going to be you're grounded for a day. They do it. You apply the punishment Two hours into the day, they say, I'm sorry, Mom. And you say, I'm glad, go back to your room the rest of the day, right? I mean, I'm not saying that's a rule, but I'm saying that's pretty much the right behavior most of the time because the moment the child understands they can make the punishment go away by saying the magic words, the next time they'll say the words without feeling the repentance. They just learned how to manipulate Mom and Dad. God's not a bad father. He's a perfect father. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. So the effect of the punishment in their day was not a repentance, nor was it intended to be repentance, nor would it really have mattered if they had had a moment of repentance. We're going to come back to this more in the future because Isaiah does himself. But just to address it in passing now, consider how chapter 40 of Isaiah opens. And remember, what does chapter 40 in Isaiah correspond to when you think of the chapters of Isaiah looking like the books of the Bible. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. So chapter 40 of Isaiah is the beginning of 2nd Isaiah, which would correspond to Matthew in our New Testament, right? Listen to 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." 
So by chapter 40 of Isaiah, we see God saying, you've paid your penance as a nation. Now remember, we're talking about what the nation is called upon to experience, not what individuals are called upon to experience. This is not to say how you and I get saved. (laughs) This is to say how God plans to deal with his nation under the terms of the Old Covenant. And under the terms of that covenant, they have a price to pay for their unwillingness to keep the bond of the covenant. He pays them out, as he says in verse 2, he is, they have received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then he says, speaking tenderly to her, he says, your hard service has been completed. So, there is in Scripture this principle that there is a time for judgment and there is a time for mercy and they are two sides of the same coin. And God can gain as much glory for His use of judgment in the face of sin as He can mercy and grace. And really, how do you appreciate one without the other? So there is eternal good purpose in God carrying out proper and righteous justice against sin in the way He does it for the sake of the nation of Israel. And then, when He is ready, brings that nation back into the bond of the covenant, as we've looked at here already in past weeks, right? It's a hard lesson. I'd say it's made harder by the fact that in the last 50 years or so, the church has taught a kind of weakened, watered-down version of who God is and what it means to be holy and just. All right, I read through that. Let's move on now to chapters 3 and 4. And I'm actually going to pick up with the last couple of verses of chapter 3 so that we can just smoothly transition back into 4 and where we're going. Chapter 3, verse 25. Your men will fall by the sword, and your mighty ones in battle, and her gates will lament and mourn, and deserted she will sit on the ground. For seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. And I read through all of verse 1 of chapter 4 because it completes a thought for Isaiah. And it's simply the last few verses on tribulation. To include that last one where you see women so desperate for a husband that they will even support themselves, which from the standpoint of honor, a woman should have expected, in, certainly in Isaiah's day, for the husband to take care of them. So they're willing to forego that honor if it comes down to it, just to find a husband. Because the reproach of being husbandless is so great. The nature of the times are, there aren't going to be a lot of men around. So that's the end of the tribulation. That's the end of Isaiah's discussion for now on the Day of Reckoning. He moves now to his new topic. Chapter 4, verse 2. His tone changes sharply again. You'll see it for yourself. Look at verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. Well, those terms, those, that discussion, very, very different, obviously, from what we've been looking at all the way back prior to, to, to chapter 4, all the way back into chapter 2 when he started talking about this day of reckoning. Now, we see here something very important starting, something he'll bring up again several times in the book. A branch motif. You know what the word motif means? It's the word you use when you're teaching and you want to sound really smart. 
like paradigm. I don't know what that word means either, but I use it. Branch motif. A theme, another word to say it. It's a theme, a concept that he will play with several times in the book. It's used to describe the coming Messiah, which is how it's being used here, but it, it conveys several ideas, and he examines them all at different points along the way. It's something that finds its source in something else. It extends out of well, a trunk in the case of a tree, right? Branches come out of the trunk of a tree. But there's something else of the same substance, usually, of the same material that was there, and it branches off in a new direction or creates something new. Now, in Jesus' case, in Christ's case, the branch image here suggests that Messiah, Christ, had his origin in the same God as the God of Israel. That it's not a new God, it's not a new direction, something out of, the left, out of left field. It's God of Israel branching off in a new way in terms of his relationship with Israel. Now, this is not to suggest, if you take the analogy too far, that somehow Jesus didn't exist originally and then suddenly he comes into existence like a branch does. It's simply to say that the Son comes from the Father in the sense of the incarnation. From the Father to us incarnate. That's the way the branch motif is being played out here. Later, he's going to use this same idea of a branch in an earthly sense to describe the earthly family that Jesus descends from. You all know that verse? Or you know that reference? The branch of Jesse. Now, in verse chapter 4, let's go back to looking at this. He is back now to describing the future glory of Israel, the Messianic kingdom. This is a good opportunity for a Bible student to ask a hard question. How do I know that what you're describing here, Steve, or what Isaiah is describing is in fact, part of the Messianic kingdom, this coming reign of Christ on earth, which we can call a millennial kingdom. Well, because I'll show you there are five details in this passage we just read which tell us definitively what period of time we're talking about. First, we are looking at the branch here in his second coming because the branch here is described as being seen by the world to be what? In verse 2, beautiful and glorious. How was Christ seen in his first coming? Not that way. Not by Israel. Remember, the whole point of Isaiah's book is about Israel and about Judah and Jerusalem. How did Judah and Jerusalem perceive Christ in his first coming? Not this way. Right? He was from Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Right? He was crucified, obviously, put to death. So, if the branch is to be seen as beautiful and glorious, it's got to be another instance than the one we know about so far. The future one, of course, in this case. The second clue, look at the second half of verse 2. The fruit of the earth is enjoyed by the survivors of Israel. Israel will receive this branch, according to Isaiah 4.2, will be blessed by him on a physical earth. So notice we're talking about the fruit of the earth is mentioned, right? The fruit of the earth. So it's a physical place. There's somewhere that there is a real earth producing real bounty, fruit. So it's a physical place. It's going to be at a time when they've received him. He's present with them. But only a surviving remnant is experiencing this blessing. So we're at a point after the remnant has been brought out of something. So it's, it lines up chronologically. After a remnant has been brought out when they're still on a physical earth. So we're not talking about their experience after they die and they're in heaven. We're not talking about something outside of our understanding. We're talking about something very real. That puts it in the time of a messianic kingdom as we understand the timeline. The third clue is that those who are in the surviving group, verse 3, are called what? Holy. How many of them are holy? All of them are holy. Can you name any group in this world right now in which all of those people are holy? 
much less Israel. If you were here the night I went into Zechariah briefly, the place in Zechariah 12 where we actually can see how God is going to take this remnant of Israel who is under siege in Jerusalem in the last days of the tribulation, and as they're hunkered down, attacked by the world, God pours out His Spirit on the nation of Israel, and they look upon Him whom they pierced and mourn for Him like they mourn for an only son. That, that part of Zechariah 12, we see in that a description of how God will effectively accomplish what He just described here. How He will make every last man, woman, and child in Israel holy. And now holy here means without sin, consecrated. So it's a time, whatever this thing is He's describing, is a time when all Israel will consist entirely of those who have survived something, are present with the Lord, receiving the fruits of the earth, and are all believing saints, all holy. There's a fourth clue. Look how they reach this state of holiness in verse 4. Their sin's been washed away following what? By a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. By some purging that was accomplished by God's Spirit prior to this moment of holiness. Well, what does that describe? Can you find up here a picture or a period of time we know is coming that has judgment and even burning that will result in a purging or or a cleansing of the nation of Israel such that they come out of that period of time holy? We call it tribulation. The purpose of tribulation is to bring the Jews back into the bond of their covenant. We're talking about the Messianic kingdom. There is one final clue in verses 5 and 6. During this time from verses 5 and 6, Israel will live around Mount Zion, and the word Zion in Scripture means the glory of Israel. There will be, in that time, we're told, supernatural displays going on of God's glory, of His Shekinah glory. And He will provide a kind of supernatural protection for the nation. They're going to see smoke and fire and a canopy of glory. Now, there's been only one other time in Scripture when the nation of Israel saw that on a consistent basis, right? And it was prior to Isaiah's day. Since he said these words, that's never happened to Israel again. But it's going to. So that all tells us as well, a future period when God's glory returns to Israel and to the temple. That's consistent with the Messianic kingdom. So, we're seeing Isaiah here describe Israel in a future time of glory, having come through a time of punishment for her sin, which we call tribulation, and living at peace in the kingdom. So this glory moment now is done. We're finished talking about this. This is now the focus for the rest of the night. Judgment. A period of judgment. But longer now than just tribulation, the seven years. A much, much longer period of time. I'm not going to define it in a a kind of start-to-finish terms tonight. I'm not going to give you the dates. That comes up a little later We'll probably look at that a little bit more next week when we look at chapter 6, because it comes up again in chapter 6. But for now, let's just understand something about what he can give us today. It's got a name out of Scripture this time. It's called the Times of the Gentiles. He gets that out of Luke, uh, a comment that Jesus makes in in the Gospel of Luke, which we'll look at when the time's right. What defines the beginning of it? Well, that much I can give you now tonight as well, because that becomes very clear not only tonight but later The time begins with the invasion of Israel by who? By Babylon. When Babylon rolls into town, that is the start. It hasn't stopped yet because, of course, it includes tribulation, which hasn't even happened yet. If it goes all the way to the end of tribulation, then what event would define the end? What specific event would you use to say that's the end? 
the second coming of Christ. So Christ's second coming will, by definition, usher in a new age, the age of Israel in her glory, under the rule of Christ. So this is a six, this date, if you want the date, 605 B.C., which is about 100 years in the future from when Isaiah is writing these words. So he's looking about 100 years out, talking to Israel about what's going to happen in that, from, from this point forward. Very long period of time, obviously, still ongoing. Look at, with me at chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. He also hewn out a wine vat in it. And then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? We'll pause there. Now, it's a song, and I don't know that it wasn't sung literally in its day. I opted not to sing it for your benefit. (laughs) Isaiah sings this song about, look at the people, his beloved. Who is Isaiah's beloved? Because Isaiah is the one who says, me, let me sing now for my beloved. So who is Isaiah's beloved in this context? When he says, I sing a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard, what does his refer to? What's the antecedent to his? The beloved. A song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. I mean, grammatically, that's the only way you can go with it, right? So his refers to my beloved. Is his capitalized in your Bible? Now, it is in mine. Granted, it wasn't that way in the Hebrew. That's an English uh, translation assumption. But it tells you something about how the translators believe the words were being used, right? So who is the beloved? got to be God, right? He's referring to God as his beloved. It gives you a little sense of how intimate Isaiah viewed his relationship with God. Not in a presumptuous way, just from the point of view of how much revelation, how close God let Isaiah get to knowing about him and his plan. So if God is the his in this story, the beloved, what's the vineyard then? If you know anything about the Old Testament and its use of this symbol, you know a vine or a vineyard is classically a picture of Israel. That's true here as well. You wouldn't necessarily know that yet, right? Let's pretend for a moment we don't have the benefit of that history or of that teaching. And we come into this completely new. You wouldn't know right up front who we're talking about. Although, of course, if you'd read chapters 1 through 4, you would probably have a kind of an idea, right? But let's say you're hearing Isaiah speak this for the first time. He's singing this song, remember? He wrote it down sometime later in his ministry as part of his book. But when he first got the idea from God, he may have gone out on a street corner for all we know and started singing it to Israel. What do you think you hear these words coming out of Isaiah's mouth? Sounds like an interesting story, doesn't it? You don't know he's talking about Israel. Not yet, not right away. So he he describes this story about a a vineyard and a vine owner or, or a landowner who prepares the ground. Look at all that he does. He dug out around it to create the right setting for the for the planting, prepared the ground, removed the stones, which is no easy task in Israel, apparently. He planted the best vines, even put a watchtower there to protect it. And then he put a vat ready to receive the fruit so that he could crush it and make wine. He's got it all set up. Then he plants, and now he says, I expect good grapes. What owner wouldn't? That's the natural expectation, right? But instead, it says, the land produced worthless grapes. Now, the word in Hebrew for worthless, yushim, 
but it's literally the word stinking. It can also mean wild, so it could be wild grapes, but it's stinking grapes. Putrid, right? Just not what you wanted. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Now, what's interesting here is we know, we can kind of guess already the vineyard is Israel, but if we didn't know that, here's what Isaiah is saying. Men of Israel, you be the judge. Tell God, you judge between God and the vineyard. What should God do now in this situation? So here's the people of Israel thinking, oh, this is good. I like this story. Let me think. What would be the right thing for God to do if he had this situation on his hands? That's what God is asking for, is their opinion on what he should do in response to the situation he finds himself in. Now, at this point, Isaiah leaves God's question unanswered, right? Because God says, look, what more could I have done? So in a way, it's a paradox. Because the obvious answer is, there's nothing else you could have done. You did everything. What am I missing, God? What, what is there that would keep you from just destroying the land? Because clearly there's a problem. Everything we do should have resulted in something beneficial and didn't. Isaiah continues on to show what God will do since the vineyard didn't produce as expected. Verse 5. So now, let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its walls, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. All right, now just staying with where we are so far, just in agricultural terms, God's response to a bad vineyard is just basically a systematic dismantling of it and an abandonment of it. And really, after all, everything he's done up to that point leaves him with little choice because what more could you do if you don't get good fruit from the ground? There's something wrong with the ground. There's something wrong with the vineyard, fundamentally. It doesn't work. It's not producing. So, specifically, he removes the hedges. Those are the protective barriers to keep animals out. That allows animals to trample it and overgrowth to come in. The ground is going to lie fallow. Weeds are going to take it over. No rain even is going to come. That's going to keep it from producing anything of any value. It's going to dry up. At this point, you're almost getting bored with the story if you're listening to Isaiah sing this. It's almost too obvious, right? But when you find out it's about you, my guess is your attitude changes just a bit, doesn't it? Verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the man of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room, so that you may have to live alone in the midst of the land. In my ears the Lord of hosts has sworn, Surely many houses shall become desolate even great and fine ones without occupants. For ten acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine, and a homer of seed will yield but an ephath of of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening, that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute and by wine, but they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of their hands, of his hands, sorry. Okay, so surprise, surprise, the analogy was about Israel all along. God essentially established them as a people, like he planted a vineyard, and then he expected, of course, that they would produce justice and righteousness, but they only produce bloodshed and distress. By the way, here's one of those Shakespearean turns of phrase that only comes across if you know the Hebrew, because there's only one letter difference in the Hebrew alphabet 
between the two pairs of words you see in verse 7. So, there's only one letter of difference between justice and bloodshed in the Hebrew and only one letter difference between the word for righteousness and distress in the Hebrew. He intentionally picked Hebrew words that look like exactly the same word. There's just one letter different in each one. Play on words which just amplifies the fact that he wanted this and got something he didn't expect or didn't want. They were stinking grapes to God. So now the analogy becomes a bit difficult for Israel because just as the vine was dismantled, let's go back in our mind and think about all that he did to the vineyard and think to ourselves, what that would that look like if he took those same equivalent steps in the nation of Israel, which is the point of this analogy? Well, that's where you get to the woes. There's a series of woes and a series of therefores. All right, so let's start with the first one. It means, it's just oi in the, in the, Greek, or in the Hebrew. Oi means judgment, literally, though. So here's a moment of judgment, woe. The first one falls on landowners in Israel's day. Landowners. These are men or families who disobeyed the Mosaic law. Under the law, tribes were given property under Moses, under, actually under Joshua, as they entered the land. Those, those parcels of land were divided up among the families within the tribe, and that was theirs eternally. And if they sold it off at some point in their time of owning it, Every 50th year, remember the year of Jubilee, the, the land would revert back to the surviving relatives of the original family so that it returned to where it was given originally under Joshua. And after 50 years, it would come back again. Think of it. Who owns the land on earth in true eternal terms? Who is the owner of the earth? He owns the land, so he gets to determine who gets the land. He gave it, certain parts of it to certain tribes in Israel eternally. They can play with it for a while, sell it off for a little while, but they can't change God's decree, which is why he said at the 50th year, it comes back to the little people I gave it to. In fact, there was a way of valuing land that took into account the year of Jubilee. If you were selling your land in the 48th year, it was worth a lot less when you sold it than if you sold it in the first year because the person buying it knew they could only keep it for two years at that point. But in the time that Isaiah is writing this, all that had been put aside. People were buying up land and never returning it which, of course, left the families who had given up their land at some point destitute eventually because they had no land anymore. They became the poor and the, and, and the uh, families that had nothing. And, of course, it's how the people became rich that tinkle the dangles on their feet, right? It's where that money came from. So it's the abuse of power and land ownership that was at the heart of some of the kinds of things Isaiah has already pronounced judgment on earlier or criticized them for earlier. So he starts with that group and he says their houses are going to become desolate. It's the thought here that they're going to have gone to all this trouble to store up all this earthly wealth and have all this land. You notice they all live together. In other words, they've bought parcels up in such a way that they create whole blocks of area that are just theirs for their family and they crowd out everyone else. He says, you're going to have all that land, but then all the homes on it are going to be empty. How do you get a bunch of land with a bunch of homes and all the homes are empty? It means you've got to take all the people and cart them off, doesn't it? Something's got to grab the people and take the people. He says the land that they have will only produce a tenth. Uh, ten acres will only yield one bath. That's about a tenth of what ten acres should have yielded. So they'll see the land stop producing and the houses will go empty. The second woe in, that ver- in the verses I read falls on those who resort to drunkenness. The emphasis, by the way, here is obviously on drinking to excess. It's not a prohibition on alcohol generally. He didn't come out and say anyone who drinks is in trouble. He talked about a very specific kind of abuse, drunkenness. But their sin is ultimately not just the fact that they're drunk. If you notice his last statement in verse 12, it's really about dissipation, isn't it? It's about idleness with regard to the work God had given them. 
It's similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 5.18. He says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. What he points out, and I think Paul's saying the same thing essentially in chapter 5 of Ephesians, is when we devote ourselves to that pursuit, it will naturally impede our ability to live in the Spirit and answer God's call to work in the Spirit. It will have other obvious detrimental effects as well. But in a spiritual sense, it sidelines us. It drugs us up and sidelines us, and it becomes dissipation. So he condemns the drunkenness in the society. Now, these are symptomatic of Israel's sins. These are, this is not an all-inclusive list. These are symptomatic examples of what's going on in Israel. Now, he's not finished with the woes at this point, but he, starts, he leaves them aside just for the moment to explain what God's prepared to do in response to what they've done wrong. Look in verse 13. He says, Therefore, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. And their honorable men are famished, and the multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure, and Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry, and the jubilance, or the jubilant within her descend into it. So the common man will be humbled, and the man of importance abased. The eyes of the proud also will be abased. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the, ho- and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. Then the lambs will graze as in their pasture, and the strangers will eat in the waste places of the wealthy. All right, he says, therefore, you're going to go into exile. So this is the first clear statement that tells us what he's talking about in chapter 5. He's talking about a time of exile to come for the nation of Israel. The word exile, galah in the Hebrew, it means to uncover or remove, but specifically to remove into captivity is the true sense of the word. They're taken out of Israel into captivity. Now, for the southern kingdom, we know that this first occurred following Isaiah. The first occurrence of this following Isaiah, the only real occurrence of it so far, has been in the 605 B.C. time frame when Nebuchadnezzar showed up. It is the marker in which what he says in chapter 5 is seen to begin, but it's not the sole extent of it. In other words, he sets a marker in time. He says, you're going to go into exile. That gives us a marker we can look for historically. Ah, here's where it happened. But that's not the sole extent of the judgment. That's just the beginning of the judgment. And it continues on well past that, and we'll see evidence of that as we go through all of Isaiah. But for now, we're getting the starting point. He says, in that beginning point, it's a punishment for their lack of knowledge. What is he saying? You're stupid, so I'm sending you into exile? What does lack of knowledge refer to? The law. So if they lack knowledge of the law, are we saying they just don't understand what it says? It's because they won't heed what it says. It's not an issue of laziness, obviously. It's a culpability that comes from not heeding it. This is what James says, right? Don't just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. To simply say you've heard it, but you don't pay any attention to it, gains you nothing. They're not heeding God's word, and as a result, they're not knowledgeable. So just as with the vineyard, a chain of events now will follow. And that chain is... The nation sees first tremendous death. That's the reference to Sheol. You know, Sheol is the place where the dead go before Christ's resurrection. If you're an unbeliever, all go to Sheol then and now. It's hell, we call it. There was a good side to Sheol, at least until Christ's resurrection, which we called Abraham's bosom. After the resurrection of Christ, you don't have to go there anymore because the whole point of being there in the first place was to await the first fruits of the resurrection, Christ's resurrection. His resurrection having happened now, there's no need to wait. To be absent the body is to be present with the Lord. We don't go through that stopping point on the way to go anymore. But this 
time of Isaiah still included that point. So for those who were dying, whether you were good or bad, you went to Sheol. The only issue is which side of Sheol you spent your time on waiting for Christ. But obviously here, these are not good people. This is not an issue of faithful people being taken to Abraham's bosom. And look at the graphic terms. Enlarging its throat to swallow these people, to take them in death, in other words. So they're going to suffer death. We know the exile that Nebuchadnezzar brought upon the nation included a lot of death and misery as he, took, uh, as he sieged that city and came in and destroyed it. Going further, he says they're going to lose all their rich splendor. Well, we know Nebuchadnezzar plundered the town and plundered the temple. The effect of it all is to do what? Humble them. Take proud men, take proud women, haughty people, and bring them down. Therefore, we're told, the Lord will be, look at this, exalted in His judgment of sin because He showed Himself holy in righteousness. This is what I was saying as we started the class tonight. There are two sides of the same coin. God can receive as much glory and honor when He performs His role of judge over sin as when He extends mercy and grace to people. Now, in the end, the land lies empty, it says, of its people you have in their place strangers living in the land. Now there's a new set of woes to these stinking grapes. Verse 18, Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, Let him make speed, let him hasten his work, that we may see it. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. This is another Shakespearean description. Look at what he says. He pronounces judgment on those who drag or pull behind them, in other words, iniquity tied by cords of lying. Then you could hear something like that coming out of Shakespeare's writing, couldn't you? It's sort of like describing a ball and chain. They've got all this iniquity behind them, tied to them by their own lies, and they're dragging it like a ball and chain. This is a great image. And these same cords are pulling carts. That's the term cart. It's like a wheelbarrow full of their own sin. Great language. They mock God. That's the next section. They mock God by demanding that He show Himself to them and explain His purposes to their satisfaction. Which is very typical for the pious, right? For the uh, Pharisees, to name one. Uh, they think of themselves upright, and if, if anything seems out of order, they're looking at God saying, why aren't you doing your job? How come the world's full of sin? They are the ones who say, this is evil, when actually it's good, and this is good when it's actually evil. Do you see that today? Talk about a contemporary scene. And he judges those who think themselves wise but are actually clueless. That's been a problem since the beginning. And those that are esteemed, the word heroes in the Hebrew, it's gibor, it means the mighty men. People within the culture who are in some way esteemed for their exploits to include hard living, right? Hard drinking, hard living, and they... They pursue injustice in their, in their world, in their culture. People, we esteem the people who do the wrong things and get away with it, don't we? And, and live wrong and hard. And, you know, for some reason, those people get lifted up in this culture. Well, just that's sin in general. So here's God's pronouncement for Israel's coming judgment. Verse 24 through 30. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, 
so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord is burned against His people and He has stretched out His hand against them and struck them down and the mountains quaked and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. For all this His anger is not spent, but His hand is still stretched out. He will also lift up a standard to the distant nation and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth. That's what He's describing. Whistling to this nation. And behold, it will come with speed swiftly. No one in it in it is weary or stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps. Nor is the belt at its waist undone. Nor its sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp and all its bows are bent. The hoof the hoofs of its horses seem like flint and its chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Its roaring is like a lioness and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey and carries it off with no one to deliver it. And it will growl over it in that day like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its cloud. All right, well, which nation did he just describe? Well, we know historically it's Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. But there's even clues in the text to tell you that's who it might be before it happened. Now, I'm not saying you would have necessarily been able to see it that clearly, but we can certainly see it now looking back. Start at the beginning of that passage. The first verse I read, it summarizes all his, the, the offenses that he's listed in general, right? They rejected God's Word, but specifically which one? They rejected the law. It's referring to the covenant. This is all because of a covenant they have with God. They rejected it, so they're going to be judged. He's going to take action that's going to result in the shaking of the ground and the, the, the laying out of many corpses. How would I tell you that he's not talking about tribulation? This isn't somehow jumped forward and now we're talking about the tribulation again. What tells you that this is not the final, last burst of God's anger and judgment against Israel? There was one phrase in there that should have told you that. Verse 25 at the end. Now let me put it in my own words. Even though all this will happen, his anger is not spent. It's not the full extent of his anger. It is not the last thing he does. For even though all this is going to happen against you, it's not the last story of the story. His anger still is more to go. Another way to say it is, this is just the beginning. So we're not talking here about something that could be considered the culmination of God's anger and judgment like tribulation is. It's something well before that. Then he says, and this is where you really get the details to tell you what this is about. He says, I lift up a standard to a distant nation. The word for standard is nes or nes in the Hebrew. It means a sign or a banner. Sometimes we use that to refer to a flag, right? Like a standard bearer is a flag bearer in the military. I mean, this is great. Just typical Isaiah language. You think of God now, he's standing next to Israel, and off in the distance you can see Babylon on the horizon. And they're doing their thing. And God takes a little flag and goes, Hey, hey, over here. Come get them. And like a dog, the description here is remarkably similar to someone calling their pet. Look what comes next. He says, Behold, it will come with speed swiftly. And I just had this in my mind, this Labrador over here, who's just kind of you know, oblivious and whoop, Hey, you know, and they take off running in response to this call. And look, they're of one mind, absolutely unwavering in their purpose. No one wearies, no one stumbles, none slumbers. His point here is twofold. In literal terms, he's saying it's like the blitzkrieg of Nazi Germany. A style of warfare like they've never seen before. An enemy so single-minded in its purpose and well-equipped and strong that it just blasts through all defenses, comes you know, straight at them. 
no deviation, no changing of purpose. They just come in straight for Israel, hell or high water. That's different than they've seen in the past. It's a whole different kind of warfare. And as it comes, he says, their arrows are sharp, bows are bent, hoofs like flint. I mean, it's an overwhelmingly strong military force. You have to put these two together. It wasn't their idea. God's calling them to do this. Intending that they do this, you take that concept, put it together with the fact that they're so well equipped and suited to the purpose, what does that tell you? God made sure they would be well equipped and suited to the purpose. He called them for a purpose. They're going to be sure about it. Nothing's going to stop them. It's not like some random historic military engagement. It's for a purpose God is ordaining here about a hundred years prior to it actually happening. A hundred years before Babylon is even a significant world power. He's calling them into existence. In verse 29, there's this interesting reference to a lion twice. The symbol of Babylon's monarchy was what? A lion. Now, it's not unique to Babylon, but it certainly is interesting that the term lion is used so prominently in the description of this force, and yet that is exactly the crest of Babylon, a lion. This is the event that begins the times of the Gentiles, and as I said, we'll consider this more next week in chapter 6. Chapter 6 is Isaiah's calling into his prophetic ministry. He describes how he came into his ministry, how God called him, how he sees this vision. It's a very dramatic scene. In the course of that description, you get down to some more specific detailed discussion about what's coming for Israel. We're right back on topic, in other words. Turn your Bibles as you finish tonight. Look at chapter 21 of Matthew. 21 of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 33 through 45. Just read this on your own as we finish tonight or as you go home tonight. 33 through 45 of chapter 21 in Matthew. It's a parable. It's a parable about a vineyard and about a vine owner and a vineyard that does not produce good grapes when it should have. Jesus is the one, of course, telling the parable this time. The end result of that, par- of that bad vineyard in the story Jesus tells is destruction again for the same offense as the first time. And he puts the blame, of course, on the, the keepers of the vineyard, the ones the master hired to take care of the vineyard. And, of course, by the end of the parable in chapter 21:45, you see the Pharisees getting angry at Jesus. Why? They remember the story of Isaiah. They know it by heart, more than likely. They remember Isaiah telling an almost identical parable. In fact, the first verse of Matthew 21:33 is almost word for word the same thing Isaiah starts with in chapter 5. So they know as soon as he starts speaking, they think he's getting ready to tell the Isaiah story again. But suddenly it goes off in a slightly different direction. Before it's all said and done, here's the comparison they're getting to hear. Jesus is saying Israel is still the vineyard not producing grapes. Israel is still going to be judged for it, just as they were when Isaiah spoke the words. And it didn't end with Babylon. In fact, it's going to happen again. And you all, the Pharisees, are to blame, or in part to blame, for leading the nation astray yet again. And they're mad at Jesus because they understand the parallel perfectly. They understand he's predicting judgment on Israel again, and they understand he's putting the blame at their feet. And, of course, they're angry at the suggestion. That's a one way we know that this whole time that's being portrayed here in Isaiah 5 is still ongoing even in Jesus' day because he uses exactly the same picture to describe the same kind of judgment which came in A.D. 70 under Rome, a continuation of this time of the Gentiles. Because Israel is still not in the bond of the covenant in in Jesus' day, nor will they be until the end of tribulation.
Heavenly Father, a book like this can overwhelm, Father, but it can also open our eyes to so many new things. I pray, Father, that we will have the patience and diligence to continue in this study. And I pray, Father, that you would set aside the, the schemes of the enemy who may, at different ways, different times, give us opportunity to be distracted or taken away from this. For we know, Father, he would love nothing more than to bring us out of your word. We pray, Father, that we would have the opportunity to finish what we've started. May you uh, guide us in that endeavor, bring us back next week, and teach us throughout the week to come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.